Hi, I'm John Anna Marie Cox. Hi, I'm John Daniel Dresner. And Anna, let's just talk about this like two reasonable beings. This is Space the Nation, where we talk about science fiction through the lens of international relations and Foucauldian discourse analysis. This episode is about the adventures of Buckaroo Banzai in the Eighth Dimension, and we have a bunch of fun things planned for future episodes, including Becky Chambers' A Long Way to a Small Angry Planet, Reign of Fire, and Space Sweepers, as well as recap analysis of Ted Lasso at the end of our episodes, as long as Ted Lasso is running. And in the spirit of Ted Lasso, this is Hot Sci-Fi Summer, meaning we're committed to keeping things the way that my pillow guy likes his conspiracy theories. Lightweight and removed from reality. We've got a <laughs> lot planned for the rest of this year, <laughs> including more Dune content. We are always taking suggestions, of course, from patrons and from non-patrons. And of course, you're welcome to become a patron. Yes, we are more likely to hear your idea in some fashion if you are a patron, either through the Discord or through the special patron-only posts on patreon.com slash space the nation you will also get goodies early episodes and the amazing discord that i just mentioned where we had to <laughs> shut down the channel devoted to making fun of dan because now he shows up every once in a while so we don't Aha! Can't, can't can't make fun of him behind his back right because don't forget no matter where you go there i am <laughs> <laughs> but before we get to our main discussion also should point out we are more than halfway to 250 patrons when we get to 250 we will have another special patron only episode chosen by the patrons and this actually leads us to why we have chosen to do the adventures of buckaroo Banzai across the eighth dimension Dan, why have we chosen to do the adventures of Buckaroo Banzai across the eighth dimension? By the way, I'm devoted to the bit that we say the full name of the movie every time, by the way. I'm I'm for that. That's good. Excellent. (laughs) We have chosen to do the adventures of Buckaroo Banzai across the eighth dimension because the patrons almost voted for this to be their patron-only episode. Instead, they chose 28 Days Later. And it is such a cult classic that everyone should be able to hear this. It is also oddly timely since the character of Buckaroo Banzai There are strong parallels between him and some recent space billionaires, referring here to Richard Branson and Jeff Bezos, because indeed the movie... (laughs) Wait, are there more? (laughs) Elon Musk, you know. Oh, right, right, right. Okay. There's more space billionaires than you think. I think he's much more like Elon Musk than he is like Branson or Bezos, by the way. That's entirely possible. Of course, Musk hasn't actually gone to space yet, so that was why I I chose that. All right. All right. Yes. As someone who watched this, I think when it first came out, this is a cult classic for me, I confess. I have also always wanted to know what the watermelon actually was doing in the film. And in researching for this episode, I found my answer, which is akin to a brown M&M answer that we'll get to in a little bit. Um, And it really is the exemplar in many ways of a cult film. It definitely improves upon multiple viewings because there is a shit ton of background stuff going on that you will not notice the first time you watch it, but then you eventually do. It also has what is truly an epic cast when it comes to character actors. There are so many good character actors in this movie, ranging from John Lithgow, who plays the Big Bad, to Christopher Lloyd, who plays John Big Boutet, to Clancy Brown in the sexiest I've ever seen Clancy Brown, I have to say. He was a good-looking man in this film, and also a rare case where he's playing a good guy in the film. And there are plenty of good lines. This movie is very memeable. I want to get this out of the way now, Dan. Yeah. I hated this movie. I absolutely hated it. And in fact, yes, I thought I might like it because it has a cast. I mean, what an amazing cast. Ellen yeah. Barkin as mm-hmm. well, right? Yeah. Uh, Jeff Goldblum, one of yes. my oh, right. one of yeah. my crushes, really. Mm-hmm. There's so many good character actors that, in fact, I have developed a theory mm-hmm. that the mathematical expression 
of how much character actors can improve any given movie mm-hmm. has a limit that approaches zero. <laughs> I paused this movie at least four times to see how much of it was left. Oh God, <laughs> I stopped in the middle of it to call a friend. <laughs> <laughs> you phoned a friend? I can't I believe you friend. did that watching this movie. Okay. And in, in the notes that I have for this movie, I wrote down, why do people like this <laughs> multiple times? <laughs> I am willing to answer that question. But, but before we proceed, I, Anna, I, you are under oath here. Was this the first time you had watched this film? It is. Okay. But I want to say with every other, you know, quote unquote cult movie I have ever seen, mm-hmm. I've pretty much seen the appeal on first viewing. And this one, not so much. And this one, as I wrote many times, why do people like this? <laughs> question mark, question mark, question mark. <laughs> I, I will say this, and I cannot remember when I first watched it, what drew me to it. Because I think the, the first time I watched it, it is in many ways incomprehensible. Yeah. But I remember, I remember, (laughs) yes, but I remember appreciating it more and more because it would make the rounds on premium and then basic cable. And I remember thanking God that I had stuck with it because I still love it. There are just so many great lines in it and there's a appealing aspect to it. Uh, You've spoken of the Casablanca problem, right? Like where you hear so much about a movie. It's actually also the Ted Lasso problem. Right. That you hear so much about something, it can't be as good as people say. And then you see it and you're like, yeah, wow, that is good. I think there is a Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai in the Eighth Dimension problem, mm-hmm. which is it is not as good as everyone said. I, I mean, maybe I had too high expectations, but okay. Like, of course, I know the line, wherever you go, there you are, right? Right. In the movie, it is delivered with less than zero energy. <laughs> like, it's just, <laughs> it just falls out of his mouth and lies on the floor for a little bit. I will defend like, Peter Weller's line reading there. <laughs> he's trying for like deep profundity, but he's trying to do it in an incredibly mellow way. I think uh, I, it's I, so I, mellow. I it's asleep. That. It's like, it's just <laughs> anyway, I do want to hear the backstory of the movie. So please. Okay. Let us get to the story behind the story. And it will interest Anna and our listeners that I think in some ways there are some very clear parallels between this film and Galaxy Quest in that both of them have sort of a lightning-in-a-bottle feel to them. The film's director, W.D. Richter, has directed only one other film. This is He's only directed two films in his life, although he's written several, including the 1978 remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, as well as John Carpenter's uh, Big Trouble in Little China. Those are decent movies. Yes. The writer, Earl MacRouch, only has three other screenplays uh, to his credit, the last one being the unauthorized John Belushi biopic, uh, Wired, that came out in 1989, Apparently, not such a good movie. No, no, not really. The two of them went through numerous treatments of the script, and apparently Roush would sort of get 50 pages in with his concept of Buckaroo Banzai and then start anew. <laughs> that explains so much, by the way. It really does, yes. <laughs> so MGM studio head David Bagelman uh, originally optioned the screenplay, but then he was fired from MGM because of poor box office performance of his other slate of films. He decided to exercise an option in his contract and therefore bought this movie with him to his own production company and then eventually sold the film for Fox. But it was a sufficiently murky 
uh, arrangement such that there have been lawsuits surrounding the copyright of the film, which is one of the reasons why they never made a sequel. Richter described Bagelman as, quote, our enemy for the entire movie, unquote, offering constant notes at the outset. For example, there was apparently originally a much deeper backstory involving Buckaroo's parents being murdered by the gangster Hanoi Shan and the World Crime League, including footage of Jamie Lee Curtis playing Banzai's mom in a flashback scene. The only thing left from that is the promise of a sequel against the World Crime League uh, in the closing credits. Bagelman also replaced cinematographer Jordan Cronenweth, who very famously did Blade Runner, with Fred Conenkamp, who has done equally good movies like Patton. But he did it to give the film a sort of flatter, campier visuals. Oh, Uh, and he succeeded. Yes. Yes, which is fine. (laughs) (laughs) But the weird thing is is that Bagelman apparently thought that the movie was going to be sort of a straight-up action caper. He kind of kept making the analogy to Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark, which suggests he must not have read Roush's script carefully. But my favorite part about this, and this is where the watermelon joke comes from, apparently halfway through the making of the film, the notes from Bagelman dried up. And the film crew began to suspect that Bagelman had essentially checked out with his film and was like focusing his energies on others. And to test that theory, they shot a scene where Jeff Goldblum asked another character, what's that watermelon doing there? And the character says, I'll tell you later. And we never, that, that Chekhov's gun of the watermelon just never goes away. They got no feedback on that scene and then realized they basically had free reign to do whatever they wanted, which sort of comes across in the movie. Apparently, when both Peter Weller and John Lithgow uh, were approached about appearing in the film, they were not entirely certain what the tone of the film was supposed to be when they were pitched. Was it supposed to be serious? Was it supposed to be campy? It would be safe to say I think they both kind of went for campy, particularly Lithgow. Weller and Lithgow also had a very difficult time keeping a straight face during some of the shoots, particularly whenever Christopher Lloyd was on the screen. And indeed, when Christopher Lloyd and John Lithgow's characters were arguing constantly, Weller barely kept it together and there's actually a shot of Lithgow almost cracking up uh, when when Christopher Lloyd's John Big Boutte flips him the bird at one point I feel like that is the backstory of a much better movie than the one I saw (laughs) (laughs) I do want to know was this made on as low a budget as it looks like I think the answer is yes. The movie was made for $12 million. Now, $12 million in 1980s money is a little more significant than it is now, but we're still not talking about a ton of money that goes into the film. Yeah. I did have fun imagining the remake I would make with, like, common household objects. You know, forks, <laughs> bubble wrap. I don't know. What, rubber gloves, yes. Yeah, rubber gloves. Yeah, yeah. This, this is a very DIY look to this yes. movie. That's and I, I will say, like... Yeah, the special effects are mostly crap. Although one of the things I actually did like and I thought was kind of innovative was the sort of organic look of a lot of the spaceships. They look genuinely different. (laughs) They look like conch shells, basically, which I kind of like. Yeah, yeah. And on the inside, it looks like someone glommed a lot of Mm Play-Doh onto something. Or styrofoam, like, yeah, like... Yeah, or melted styrofoam and then stuck some electronics into it. Yes. I kind of appreciated how it... They took a real middle ground between a high-tech look and kind of a more organic one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they took a literal middle ground of it yes. like, and just went with organic with some high-tech stuff stuck into it. You know, and that's a look. I, I don't think I've ever seen it in any other movie. So Because it cannot be replicated, Anna. I and I think that's, it. yes. Okay. There. Speaking of cannot be replicated, I am so eager to hear you recount the plot because <laughs> you could hold... A six shooter to my head, and I don't know if I would be able to. 
So. All right, Anna, here goes. And I grant you, this is, I'm going to preface this by saying, if you have not watched Buckaroo Bonsai, you know what? Listen to this plot summary, because it might actually <laughs> benefit you in terms of watching the film. Because that way you don't have to care about the plot and you can appreciate the the very quirky, idiosyncratic details. All right, act one, meet Buckaroo. Buckaroo Banzai is your typical Japanese-American neurosurgeon who, in the search for more interest, decides to pursue martial arts, particle physics, and forming a band called the Hong Kong Cavaliers. Team Banzai is testing a jet car in cooperation with the Department of Defense and using an oscillation overthruster developed with his mentor, Professor Hikita, succeeds in breaking the dimensional barrier and drives straight through a mountain. That's pretty impressive. This is not the first time, however, an Earth scientist has done this. Back in 1938, Dr. Hikita was working with one Dr. Emilio Lizardo, who was attempting to cross the dimensional barrier as well. He was only partially successful, however, as his head got stuck in the eighth dimension, even though the rest of his body stayed here. When they finally managed to pull him out, they found instead uh, that a psychopath named John Warfin had taken over Lizardo's brain. He was therefore institutionalized at the Trenton Home for the Criminally Insane for the next roughly 40-something, 50 years. However, watching television and seeing that Bonsai... He aged pretty gracefully he did. for that long. That's I true. Say. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know what? You know, insane lust for As power does that partner, for you. did his partner, who apparently just fell into a vat of, like, powder. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it happens. <laughs> oh, Yikita, yes, yes. Yeah. Yes, it's... <laughs> So, fun trivia fact, apparently Robert Ito, who played Hikita, uh, he's, I think, most well-known as playing uh, Sam on Quincy, wanted this role so bad, he apparently did his own makeup to, like, for screen test. And maybe wow. they just... Wow. And did they he just, also do it for the film? I was going to say, maybe they just let him do it for the film. I don't know. Okay. Point being, Warfin sees news that Bonsai has developed an overthruster, recognizes that he can now get back home, and therefore breaks out of the criminally insane and leaves for parts unknown in New Jersey. In a single day, Bonsai performs innovative brain surgery, drives through that mountain in Texas, and then is back in New Jersey to perform with the Hong Kong Cavaliers, where he sees the spitting image of his dead wife Peggy in the audience. It turns out that this is Penny Pretty, who was likely Peggy's identical twin left for adoption in Laramie, Wyoming. Anna, I have a question. I have several questions, but let's get to the main one. If this film was released today, would Bonsai be perceived as just another egotistical, vainglorious entrepreneur working in league with the deep state? I believe that Bonsai would be perceived as a white man doing a pretty racist (laughs) impression of a biracial person. Okay, I object. It is not a racist impersonation. You know, it's It's not appropriative. It really is. I mean, like, for one, it is a white guy. It's a white guy. Totally. Yes, that's fair. That would not happen today. No, that's very true. And the, I think it's a, it's appropriative, which is, you know, it's not racist in the, you know, calling people names way, mm-hmm. but it is, you know, expressing the power structure <laughs> of white supremacy to, like, just take people's culture and, like, kind of pantomime it, you know. I mean. I guess. I mean, it, let me put it this way. And I'm, there's just so little energy given to it. Like, it, it that would be kind of offensive, I think. Like, mm-hmm. it's just like, oh, yeah, Andy's half Japanese. Right. You know, it's like, well, in some ways, that's it. Even, but it can't be it's, it's, both. It's not even like Annie like, has some swords and stuff. Well, I guess this is my question. How can it be appropriative if it's only sort of done a little bit? I mean, I grant you it's there. And like you see him at one point in a kimono. Yeah, um, well, I think that's enough. I think some appropriation is enough to count as appropriation. I mean, you can roll your eyes. I, I mean, it bothered me. You know? No, let me put it this way. I, and I, also, he's so white. Like, it's just... <laughs> 
every time he does that, it's just like, here is a white guy doing Japanese shit for the purpose of this very inconsequential backstory. Like, it plays no part in the movie that he's right. not Japanese. No, I kind of wonder if, like, this is, again, where it was the legacy of they'd done so many versions of the script that it was just sort of baked in, even though, as you say, it wasn't necessary. But I do agree with you. There is no way they would have cast Peter Weller if they were making this movie now. The other thing I want to say about this part of the movie is I would really like to know more about the government agency that approved the experiment. Because it's apparently being conducted out of several ramshackle shacks <laughs> and with a car that appears to be spray painted black. Uh, so it's either the cheapest aerospace project ever <laughs> in the history of time or like some kind of graft investigation is in order. I mean, well, I, 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 I mean, you, you know more about the Department of Defense than I do. So let me put it this way. Given what we and, learned and I, in course, the movie. Of course, it's a reflection of the movie's budget. Yeah. But still, I found it actually almost endearing <laughs> that it, it looked like such a pitiful experiment. Like, <laughs> so I would say a few things in response to this. The first is, is that one of the things that in the movie is that it's clear the DOD doesn't know that's what they're actually going to do with this car. It looks like they're just going to test the sound barrier. And it's clear the Secretary of Defense was very surprised to find out, wait, they're driving through a mountain? What the hell's going on? What's phase two? You know, you hear that. Second, Although you would also think that the Department of Defense would be interested in that. So why wouldn't you tell them? that's what you were going to do. Maybe they weren't sure it was going to work. I don't know. Or maybe they wouldn't have approved it. This is what happens when you start writing the movie over every 50 pages. Yes. But the second thing is, is that given what we learn later in the movie, I completely agree with you that the Defense Department in this film badly needs a procurement audit because clearly they don't know what the fuck is going on. Um, That is one thing that becomes very clear. That, yeah. yeah. You know, $300 wrenches are the least of their problems. Exactly. (laughs) Yes. All right. Continue. Okay, let's go to Act 2, the Electroid backstory. At a press conference to explain his dimensional travel, Banzai is told that he has a call from the president. Surprise, it's actually an attempt by the Black Electroids from Planet 10 to warn him that the evil Red Electroids are trying to steal his overthruster. When he returns to the press conference, he sees that some of the people in the audience from Yo-Yo Dine Propulsion Systems are, in fact, evil Red Electroids. Those Red Electroids then kidnap Professor Hikita and all hell breaks loose. Banzai's crew does some research and learns that everyone at Yo-Yo Dine... I want to interrupt to say, as a journalist and quasi-academic, I did really appreciate the fact that the research was considered like, hey, get on that. Do some research. (laughs) It was like part of the action. (laughs) That's some really important work for you to do. Go Google some shit. <laughs> but this is before Google. Okay. I, know, like I the, mean, I just, it's just yes. like, it, I, I want to give him credit. It was before Google. It yeah. was probably pretty hard work. Exactly. Like I said, I genuinely appreciate okay, it. Okay. All right. All right. Like that is part of the action, you know, of the movie is that, uh, yep, get me to a keyboard. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Banzai's crew does the research, and they discover that everyone at Yo-Yo Dine got Social Security cards on November 1st, 1938, in Grover's Mill, New Jersey, which, and this happens to be the day after Halloween, which is the day after Orson Welles' famous War of the Worlds radio broadcast, in which everyone believed that there was, in fact, an alien invasion in Grover's Mill, New Jersey, until Welles had to then tell everyone, no, 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 that was a hoax. In the context of the movie, apparently not a hoax. So, Banzai feet freeze Professor Hikita from the Red Electroids, and everyone makes their way back to the Banzai Institute for Biomedical Engineering and Strategic Information, which is what I plan to name my think tank when I get the funding. 
Banzai receives from Black Lectroid John Parker a holographic message from the Black Lectroid leader John Emdahl, who explains that Warfin was the head of the Lectroid's hated military caste. He and the rest of the Red Lectroids were overthrown by freedom-loving forces and banished to the formless void of the Eighth Dimension. Banzai's Overthruster, however, gives them a way to get back to Planet 10. Emdahl warns Banzai that if the Red Lectroids get the Overthruster, they'll have no choice but to disrupt global communications and fire a particle beam weapon from the U.S. airspace to Smolensk in the USSR, triggering <laughs> World War III. Fucking Rube Goldberg. Yes. Like, <laughs> World War III. Anna, that's quite the threat! Uh... <laughs> That said, to be fair, there really is no nuance to the Red Electroids. I mean, Warfin's room in the Trenton, you know, home of the criminally insane, literally has the term Il Duce written on it, on the wall. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so this is one of the most confusing stretches of the movie. Which is saying something. Yep. <laughs> Uh, I was intrigued that the whole Electroid thing might be like a comment on race relations. Mm-hmm. If it is, it's not much of a comment. <laughs> Just sort of, is this, like, I don't, like, so the black electroids, when they take human form, are black. Correct, yes. They also all have random Jamaican accents, mm-hmm. <laughs> which seems odd. <laughs> and and They all look like Rastafarians. They all basically look like Rastafarians. I don't like want to call it, yeah. like, racist, but it's very specific kind of black person. Yes. Like, it's. It's a real specific black electroid. I would have appreciated it if maybe if they'd had gone even further for it. Like mm-hmm. they'd had it be like they're actually like if they'd made some kind of reference to Rastafarians are actually a lot of them are aliens. Secretly perhaps. black electroids. Okay. Yeah, or that's how that's how the black electroids blend into the population. They found this population that wow, actually we look a little like that. Mm-hmm. Let's go for it. I will note that the cast is actually pretty diverse. Mm-hmm. In general, um, in part because of the black electroids, but also they have black people filling out some other characters, which I appreciated. Interestingly, I do not think there is an Asian person in the movie. That's not true. For, except for Hikita. Except for Hikita. Um, for a movie that is yeah. <laughs> premised <laughs> on having some Asian influence, I find that a little odd. I, I will say also that the whole black electroid, red electroid thing why did they not just make the electroids like black and white? Because I actually found them hard to tell apart. Oh, really? Like, no, that I, I mean, maybe it's my TV, yeah. but like I just, or maybe it's how terrible the movie is. But <gasps> I, I kind of, I lost track of things a lot, but I was also doing other things that I started to, to kind of drift away. <laughs> so let us, Continue. All right, let's get to Act 3, strapping on your six guns. The Red Electroids sneak into the Bonsai compound. They abscond with Penny and the Overthruster, but they don't realize that Penny has the Overthruster. In the shootout, they appear to kill Rawhide, who's played by Cansley Brown, and then hightail it back to Yo-Yodyne. Warfin calls Banzai and threatens to kill Penny unless he comes to Yo-Yodyne with the Overthruster alone. Banzai briefs the president, who is surprised to learn that the company tasked with building a new truncheon bomber is actually using DOD funding to build a spaceship. POTUS sends his Secretary of Defense to help out Team Banzai. Buckaroo, as planned, goes to Yo-Yodyne alone in advance of his team, the Blue Blazers. Warfin and his chief henchman, John Bigbute, torture Buckaroo and Penny to little avail. 
The Blue Blazers infiltrate Yoyodyne and start a shootout, which kills the power and lets Buckaroo escape. As Warfin and the Red Lectroids seem on the verge of succeeding in returning to Planet 10, however, the Black Lectroids cut global communications. The President prepares for a nuclear war. Anna, I love how the Secretary of Defense was suspicious of Banzai because of foreign nationals associated with his team, and yet turned out to be funding the Red Lectroids the whole damn time. Dan? Yes. This is why I believe that this movie might be in part a documentary. <laughs> kind of like The Shining is about the space program being faked. Wait, what? Yeah, you don't know about that? No, I do not. Yeah, there's a there's a whole theory that yes, I don't know how to explain it other than I just thought it was a documentary about the writing <laughs> process. I mean, you know. <laughs> Yes, and the book is an even better version of it being about alcoholism and the writing process. Yeah. But there's a movie called Room 217, which is about all the different theories that have come up around The Shining. I and, see. and it is an entertaining movie. Okay. So go for it. And I, I would hope that someone makes a similar movie about this. <laughs> Fair enough. Also, so getting back to the actual plot, uh, yeah. I did find the Secretary of Defense kind of just bluffing and blustering his way through security checks. Mm-hmm. Peak white guy. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That is what a white man can do. And apparently, I guess, you know, in the electroid lexicon as well. Like, yeah. that's how it works. Mm-hmm. I did think that Jonathan Lithgow got funnier and funnier. <laughs> and the kind of overt Mussolini references... Like, we're, we're pretty great. Yeah. I mean, it also, that he, there's, I think, one scene where he's wearing, like, an overcoat that has all these medals on it, and then he takes that off, and he's wearing a suit jacket that has medals on it. <laughs> yes. No, let me put it this way. I think the movie... And, and this is this is the part of the movie where I started to notice stuff in the background. Yeah. I will... Maybe we can talk about this more later. I suspect that's because I was so bored with the actual movie that was happening, like, the front part of the movie. Mm. <laughs> like, I was, like, searching for other stuff. To look at. I will say this. Lithgow. I think I caught a lot of the stuff that you that, that you mentioned that's mm-hmm. sort of the cult stuff. Yeah. And, and I still didn't like it. Well, so part of it might be that Lithgow, dis- I mean, Lithgow does disappear for about 45 minutes during the film. You see him briefly in the beginning and then he goes away and then he comes back once they finally get back to Yo-Yo Dine. And I wonder if maybe that was part of it. But that said, let us wrap up this plot. Act four. Part of what? Sorry. Part of what? Part of why you didn't like it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but, the, and also, I mean, where was Jeff Goldblum? Like, most <laughs> of the time. Like, just put him on the screen. He was I'll trying watch. to save lives. I will watch. I know. I will watch him. Okay. Hey, also, by the way, I, the other thing I it was worth pointing out is Goldblum has the, only Jeff Goldblum could pull off the ridiculous cowboy costume that he wears I, for I most think of this film. it's supposed to look ridiculous, yes. but it doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't look ridiculous on Goldblum, exactly. Yeah, yes. right. Yes. Like, it's sort of like you recognize like on the surface, oh, this is supposed to be a ridiculous outfit. But he wears it with such a plum. Oh, like, yeah. it just is, and everyone else is dressed kind of funny too. Yeah. So it just doesn't actually stand out. No, the aesthetic in the film is sort of this weird sci-fi slash early 80s new wave aesthetic, and yet... I kind of like it, so, you know, there yeah. you go. Okay, yeah. go ahead. All right, Act 4, Sayonara Warfin. There's a fight at Yo-Yo Dine. Buckaroo and John Parker sneak onto Warfin's ship. Warfin tries to use his overthruster, but he does not have Banzai's crucial missing circuit and therefore can't connect the dots. And so, as a result, stays in New Jersey, but is flying in a ship. He does, however, eject the thermopod with Banzai and Parker in it. 
After Banzai figures out how to use the controls and actually fly the damn thing, he and Parker destroy Worfen's ship. The Black Electroids stand down, there is no nuclear war, and Penny, who it seemed to die, was revived with an ionized kiss from Buckaroo. It's a happy ending. There is also a very weird kick-ass scene during the credit sequence where everyone is walking, you know, in a badass way in the L.A. Canal or whatever the hell that thing is yeah, called. the L.A. Basin. L.A. Basin. Yeah. It looks really good. And in fact, I think... I want to say Wes Anderson copied that for The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. The, the credit sequence for that movie also is sort of an homage to Buckaroo. It was my favorite part of the movie, Dan. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I will say, on it, there is no denying that the movie does need to be watched twice to truly You cannot make me. <laughs> I, you know what? A year from now, the next time I see you, we're going to watch this film together. I'm going to make you watch it one more time. And if you don't like it, then It'll fine. have to be like a clockwork orange. Exactly. Like- <laughs> Um, But if for no other reason that there is a lot that is being said in the background, although I do wonder whether if you watch it on a now with closed captioning, that might actually help you a little bit because otherwise the stuff you won't hear. But my favorite line in the in the background is is actually said at the Trenton home for the criminally insane where you hear lithium is no longer available on credit. But the Yo-Yo Don guy had some good ones, too. Which announcement was your fave on it? Like I said, I actually, well, I also was watching it with closed captions on, which is now like the thing that I do pretty much all the time. Someone should write a trend piece about that because mm-hmm. I think all of us do. Yeah. And I agree. The announcements were really funny. The one that I liked the most was The Greatest Joy is the Joy of Work, <laughs> which appealed to my simple democratic socialist heart. Mm. That belongs in Animal Farm. <laughs> Moving on. <clears throat> Dan. Anna. Is there IR in this movie? Anna, no matter where you go, there you are with some international relations. <laughs> I don't apologize in the slightest for that line. That was a good line. Okay. So. Whatever makes you happy, dude. <laughs> so I do think the most interesting stuff in this movie from an IR perspective is civil military relations. All the states involved have some issues here. There is a clear black electroid, red electroid divide. In the John Endall message, we learned that the red electroids were originally the military on Planet 10, and then they got exiled. So clearly, they did not necessarily have stuff worked out on Planet 10. The U.S. military is actually somewhat more responsible. It is interesting that in the scene in the sort of hospital room where the president is having his back contraction, it is in fact the general who is easily the most dovish of the president's advisors. And I'll say I did find that part hilarious. Yes, it's really good. And we've actually talked about how sometimes the military can be more dovish than politicians. Mm -hmm. So I thought about that. I thought, well, Dan will probably say something about this. I don't like bodily humor jokes but he does say something about what is it he says you probably know the line Which, like he's he's about about to shit his pants but oh he puts yeah, it yeah in a different yeah, way yeah. <laughs> actually what i what's what i found really funny is when then then the senator is a woman says oh get a grip general and then the president says finally someone has the balls to talk about this which is a sort of weird one-off all thing of that is like if you could somehow take that and make it the movie like <laughs> I would have liked it more, I think. Like, I'm sorry to interrupt the international relations That's portion okay. of, this, of this episode. But it there's something strange about this movie to me, which is I feel like there's different sensibilities happening in the foreground and the background. I think you're right. I mean, is it, you know, in terms of the story behind the story, it's very clear that there were a lot of cooks on this broth. And I think some of the cooks yeah. really knew what they were doing. Yeah, and I, yeah I think yeah. the sous chefs might have a better future, yeah. you know, running restaurants. Because the stuff up front, I just, you know, 
maybe we are about this. I just I found the acting to be weirdly flat. I found the plot to be incomprehensible. Incomprehensible. Yeah, just, that's totally just, fair. Just no, I, I don't think you're wrong about that. Yeah. <laughs> And then every once in a while, there'd be something in the background that I'm like, wait, that's genuinely funny. And it seems like it's from a different movie. It might be that we disagree on this movie in no small part because of whether or not you accept the character of Buckaroo Banzai and his crew as, for lack of a better way of putting it, cool. Oh. And I think the way... <laughs> and and this might be the difference between seeing this film as a teenager for the first time as opposed to seeing it in 2021 when you're right there are questions about cultural appropriation that would immediately get tagged to this film uh in ways that were not even thought about in 1984 when the film originally came out and so that might be part of it which is that a lot of the sort of you know like the banter between buckaroo and perfect tommy for example does come off as flat if you're like not invested in the characters so yeah. Dan, I, I want to ask you a question about your teenage years. Oh, God. Were you actually a new wave rocker or, or a punk person in any sense? You know what, Anna? I'm flattered that you even ask this of well, me. Well, I feel like I have to ask just to make sure. Anna, I was captain <laughs> of the math team in high school. So the answer is no. I had no remote freaking clue how to do that. So no, I was just a total nerd. All right. So... I was also a nerd, but I had sort of flashes of, like, punk. I can believe that, Like, I did do some, like, safety pins through my ears and stuff. Mm. And I also liked punk rock, Mm -hmm. the actual music that is now known as punk rock. You know, I love the Sex Pistols. You know, I love Susie and the Banshees. Mm -hmm. Like, I won't name check all the bands that I love. But during that time, which would be, like, the mid to late 80s, the, early 80s, com- but yeah. Early 80s, you're, you're right, sorry. Yeah. Early 80s to mid 80s, that mm-hmm. would probably be the best time frame. Yeah, actually, up to the late 80s, because that was really where I was. Anyway, okay. um, I think the punk rock community in general in that time period, to sense it's a community, like the appropriation of our shit was taken pretty seriously. Mm. Like the sort of fake punk that like people, I remember right. people would like dress up as punk, quote unquote punk for Halloween, mm-hmm. you know, like as if it were a costume. Right. And not something that you were trying to say. Yeah. And so I think even if I saw this movie when it came out. You would have been offended at the. I would have been offended by like the. Have you ever heard the word poser? Yes. Yes. They say it in um, Black Widow. But I said it. Yeah. Like, no, I that was a thing. That was like the worst insult you could get. Poser was definitely a 1980s insult. That is true. Yes. Yeah, and the friends I had, like the s- skaters and the punk rock people, I was a bit of an outlier among that group, I have to say. Like, so, I never quite could get brave enough to, like, do anything really weird with my hair, hmm. you know? Uh, but I, I pegged my jeans and wore white T-shirts with roll-up so, sleeves. So here's my response to this, which I is... I tried to wear a leather jacket in Austin, Texas. <laughs> well, that's just dumb for a variety of reasons, but yeah. yeah. that was dumb. Uh, I begged my dad for a leather jacket. But here's what I would I would push back on. You know, first of all... You heard the actual band play at one point. This was and not. And it was awful. But it was not punk, more importantly. I was baffled by what it was. I, I, I don't I, know, you know, who knows what it was, but, but I think. But they tried to dress punk. That's, I can't. I think they tried to dress New Wave, and there's a difference. And that, so. No, you know, there's a difference on, here. Yeah, yeah, there is. But it depends on where you went to high school, what communities you were in. But, okay. like, I went to high school in Round Rock, Texas, the first part of my high school, and also middle school. And in Round Rock, which, which was at that time. Not a suburb of Austin, mm-hmm. but, <laughs> but its own rather, town. Its own small town. Yes. There were so few of us that wanted to claim an identity outside the norm mm. 
that we wound up kind of banding together. So like the new wave folks and the punk folks, like we didn't fight. Yeah, I know there's like even like I can't remember which movie like has that plot line. Valley Girl. Um, and and like uh, the skaters who were kind of punk rock, but also just like kind of weirdly quasi faux California. Mm-hmm. Like we all hung out together. So I think I would also have been offended by the fact they were trying to look new wave. Okay. <laughs> Clearly, this has touched on some important topics, and we'll yeah, get to that maybe in the Ted Lasso you know, we, portion. We, yeah. yeah. All right. So I do consider these these conversations like therapy. Dan. <laughs> I'm glad you do, Anna. Let's get back to the international. Relations. Back to the international relations. So, as I said. <laughs> The uniformed services are acting appropriately scared because a nuclear war is bad, whereas the civilian leadership clearly has issues. You know, the Secretary of Defense has apparently lost all control over the procurement process. And my favorite thing (laughs) is that the senator, the female senator, you know, acts all like rough and tough saying, yeah, we should totally go to war. And then it turns out that she's chicken shit because once the president is actually about to launch things, she's like, maybe we should think about this a little more seriously. And like, that is exactly how senators would probably think about actually going to nuclear war. That was totally on point. Which also, you know, gives rise to the next problem, which is the trouble with declaring war during the nuclear age. Um, in, <laughs> in the United States, constitutionally, that is Congress's job. It is Congress's job to declare war. What? Uh, what? You're saying when declaration of war short form is not a thing? It's not a thing. But Anna, here's a fun trivia question. When was the last time the U.S. Congress officially declared war on another country? Is it Korea? Nope. No, Korea was a police action. Mm-hmm. Was it World War II? It was World War II. Yeah. That is the last time. And let me assure you, Anna, I, I, the U.S. military has been deployed many times since then. I agree. Yes. And also there have been v- votes to continue whatever the fuck they're calling it these days. Uh, yeah, yeah, although I thought over and over. I think we're about to have the end of the AUMF. I you, we are about to have the yeah, end of it. But like fair. they're. But it only took 20 years is the point. Yes, yeah. Yes. <laughs> So, you know, we're learning. But the film finally does highlight both the benefits and risks of outsourcing to private contractors. You could argue that the pro example of this is Team Bonsai, which does develop a genuinely interesting innovation in terms of dimensional travel. That they managed to steal out from under the Department of Defense's (laughs) nose. So, okay. Not steal, because it was their own technology. But uh, the con, of course, being Yo-Yo Dine and the very fact that the the Department of Defense (laughs) was funding the Red Electroids. And all I can say is I hope that's Secretary of Defense resigns because, yes, as you pointed out, he gave off tremendous, you know, overconfident white guy energy, and he should not in any way have been that confident. So, Anna. Uh, yes, Dan. Did you find a way to point out the evils of capitalism in this film? Dan. Anna. Sometimes the markets work. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes things that are meant to bomb, bomb. <gasps> and I, that's that's all I have to say. Oh, Anna, 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 <laughs> Anna. <laughs> but Dan, we have to move on because... <laughs> ping, ping, ping. What is that noise? It is the debris field. This is where we say the things we didn't say earlier. Dan, please go first. 
I don't have much on this one. Just a few things. First, I really did enjoy watching this time. Lithgow gave a truly hammy performance. And my favorite line reading that he gives is where he says, you know, I'm sure in the miserable annals of the earth you will be duly enshrined. And it's just, you know, it, I don't know what sound effect they did with it, but it just, it, it was really wonderful. I also like the fact that John Parker, who was the black electroid with uh, Buckaroo Banzai and the Thermopod, says at one point, I'm a diplomat. I failed flight school. I don't know what to do on this ship, which I actually found legitimately funny. I, I indeed, I may have even LOL. There you go. And Contra Anna, I think a sequel would have been lovely. I would have liked to have seen what would have happened if Buckaroo Bonds, I had to fight the World Crime League. But that clearly is not going to happen. Anna, what about yours? I promise I won't do this very often. <laughs> but I just want to read you my notes. <laughs> so here they are. Mm. So. Good thing for the intriguing backstory, because this car stuff is not exciting. <laughs> Weird to just pick up alien goo and brain. Chekhov's Harley's question mark. I do not like this movie. Ellen Barkin is posing very weirdly in that cell. Why is Ellen Barkin on this panel at this very poorly attended press conference that is happening a full day after the experiment? I will grant you that made no sense whatsoever. Keep going. I think I hate this movie, except Jeff Goldblum. Also, there is a dog. Most of this movie does not actually take place in the eighth dimension. True. I think I liked this movie better as they live. <laughs> okay, finally, Jeff Goldblum is at the piano. <laughs> what is Ellen Barkin wearing? All caps, two question marks. <laughs> I would like to meet the person that hired over half a dozen of the best character actors of the last century and then put plastic masks over their faces. <laughs> Twin Peaks little person, exclamation point. The big booty joke is funny. Hmm. Yakov Smirnov, all caps, exclamation point. And then I asked a question I did ask myself. Did they come up with the name Buckaroo Banzai first and then plan the movie around it? That's entirely possible. Okay. That is how I feel about that movie. Um, Dan, well, you know what? We've, we've talked about something that we disagree on. Mm-hmm. It's now time to turn to something I know we both agree on. This is true. So this is a spoiler alert for people who have not seen the first episode of season two of Ted Lasso. Dan, spoiler alert, that reminds me of something. (laughs) You have a column called Spoiler Alerts, Mm -hmm. and you wrote about Ted Lasso. Mm -hmm. Uh, Could you explain how you managed to work Ted Lasso into your uh, column about political science? I was very proud of this. The title of the column is (laughs) Ted Lasso is Infrastructure. And my point here was that, you know, as we all know, there are... uh, there are debates about infrastructure going on uh, in Congress. I love that you assume of our audience, as we all know. As we all know. I, you know what? About infrastructure I think my audience, I, I will defend our audience. I believe that they know. They, they totally might even know. know that there's two bills. There's two they bills. There's know. the bipartisan infrastructure bill, and then there is the reconciliation human infrastructure bill that will probably be passed by Democrats only if it's passed. And the idea of the human infrastructure bill is to you know take care of things that make it possible for people to go to work or for people to participate in the economy. And I would argue that Ted Lasso is human infrastructure. And I mean that mostly seriously, because no pressure on season two, but at least the season one of Ted Lasso was genuinely a balm during the pandemic, because it actually articulated a message that was by and large kind, I think would be the the principal word I would use. And we needed some kindness during the pandemic. Also, historian Eric Rauchway, uh, 
like the column and pointed out that in fact during the actual New Deal, artists were paid to create art that because is correct. that is something that they were supposed to do. And so therefore, if I was going to you know put an amendment into the Human Infrastructure Bill, it would be to subsidize every American's consumption of Apple Plus to be able to watch Ted Lasso because you have to subscribe to Apple Plus to watch it. And I know it's not that expensive, but nonetheless, some people can't afford it. Would this be subsidizing a big mega corporation? Yes, but damn it, that is how interest group politics works. <laughs> That's tradition. Exactly. That's, just tradition. That's America, okay. god damn it. <laughs> so I'm going to do the brief synopsis. Oh, good. All right. So Danny Rojas murderizes the team mascot, causing <laughs> a condition that we shall not name. Yes. Ted reluctantly agrees to hire a sports psychologist, whom he is immediately intimidated by. She speaks every language, both linguistically and emotionally, and the team flocks to her. Roy is enjoying not having anything to do with football, while Keeley keeps trying to get him on TV. Rebecca is dating a starfucker, <laughs> and poor Higgins is a man without portfolio or office. Coach Beard has dated many dancers. Did I miss anything, Dan? The sports psychologist cures Danny, which is the key thing. Yes. Yes, yes that's yes, important yes, to that know. She's very good about everything, but like the key thing is she, she manages to get Danny to love and realize that football is life. And death. And death. And that is, in fact, my favorite line. That is a pretty good line. Yeah. <laughs> Ted asks Danny what it is that the sports psychologist did for him. And Danny, in his irrepressible way, mm-hmm. goes, she taught me that football is life. But and football is death. death. So good. So other things I liked, um, we've never seen Ted intimidated before, mm-hmm. I think. I think he's always kind of had that good Midwestern, like, bravado. I don't want to call it bravado. It's confidence. Mm-hmm. He just has confidence. Coach Beard is... I think actually my favorite character, and he is the perfect realist foil to Ted. I also enjoy, and I don't know if this is an intentional theme, that almost all of the times that Coach Beard feels like he needs to tell Ted a hard truth, it's at that pub. (laughs) That might be the case. He sometimes does it in the office, but mostly it's at at the pub. Yeah. Yeah. And then the yoga moms, like Roy and the yoga moms, like I, that could be a spinoff. And that's a good band name, Roy and the yoga moms. (laughs) That's a good band name. All right, Dan, what about you? What did you like? Like you, I liked Ted being mildly threatened, I think, by the sports psychologist, which actually makes sense because their job mandates, I think, overlap a fair amount. Ted, I think, throughout season one, thrives because people underestimate him, and he's actually a very good motivator. That is his his comparative advantage as coach is he knows how to get to his players because, let's be honest, he does not know a lot about actual football. He knows a lot about American football. He doesn't know that much about English football. I have a question about that plot line. Yes, go ahead. Speculation, Uh which is that has been actually one of the main points of the show, right? That like he isn't a good soccer coach. I'm going to use the word soccer here. He is a great motivator. Right. And the motivation matters more than the soccer. And I'm wondering like if it's going to turn out like that they do different things, the psychologist and Ted. I also wonder if maybe he'll get better at coaching, but I'm having troubles. I mean, there's obviously a tension and conflict. Mm -hmm. I don't know exactly how you could work it out in a way that is true to the show's spirit. I'm looking forward to finding out. I mean, and but labor this way. For this show to work, you need Ted Lasso needs a foil, and I think during throughout season one, it was Rebecca clearly. It is appropriate that is the sports psychologist uh, this time around. I think the other reason, perhaps, that Ted might be worried is that. It'd be interesting to hear what he thinks about with respect to psychology. I mean, Ted, this might be where Ted's sort of Midwesternness doesn't necessarily. He he kind of recognizes that psychology is a thing, and maybe it might help other people, but it won't help him. Even though he might, frankly, need some therapy. 
And we cannot actually sleep on the fact that he mentions his couples counseling because as someone who is the veteran of couples counseling, what he says about it, I believe might be a direct quote from from my husband, which is that (laughs) I feel like it was just an excuse to tell me what I did wrong or something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's what a lot of men think couples counseling is. I'm not, you know what? I'm not going to say they're entirely wrong. (laughs) Yeah. So I, I have a, I, so it's very odd because I'm married to a therapist. We've never done couples counseling and I have had very little therapy in my life. So I could see how that could be perceived by Ted Lasso. Yes. But don't know. The- oh, and what are, and also, they're not wrong because like what I, like my argument is that it's hard for women to be able to say to partners, I think people who are, you know, acculturated as women. Mm-hmm we have some blocks as far as expressing what we want and need. Mm. And I found that having a counselor there was one of the only ways that I felt like I was able to fully articulate what I thought about things and what I felt about things. Hmm. That only by doing a bank shot off the therapist could I actually break through the man bubble. So... But, you know, it didn't work out, so... <laughs> Leave it this way. Having been married to someone who has gone to therapy and is now a therapist for, you know, 24 years, I, I am not the same person that I was 24 years ago, which is I am, I think, a better communicator as a result of this. And so that is one of the, the, the valuable things in terms of uh, well, well, marriage. Dan, speaking of learning things... Yes. What did we learn from Ted Lasso this week? I will say... Yes. Don't fucking settle for fine. Am I right? <laughs> this is also the other th- the thing that I learned because Anna is quoting directly from Roy during the episode after a double date between Roy, Keeley, Rebecca, and Rebecca's uh, new man friend. Starfucker. Yeah, Starfucker. Who's perfectly fine, by the way, which Roy says. But then Roy goes on to say, don't you fucking dare settle for fine. And the, the takeaway lesson I got from that is that everyone needs at least one no bullshit friend like Roy. Where it looks like he's not paying attention, it looks like he's in his own world, but in fact he, <laughs> he knows <was> so miserable. <laughs> he knows exactly what is going on and, you know, just spits truth like fire. I think there's something to be said for people that are offended by fine. Yeah. So Dan, let's wrap up mm-hmm. um, reminding people that they can support us financially if they so choose. Our show is such that we do not make money off of it, but we do collect enough at least at the moment, to be able to give some money to our sound engineer, Karen, who is now trying to save to put her pup, Alwyn, through college. I hope that Alwyn has made a good choice. I mean, you know, it applies early. That's the, the way to maximize. Well, he's six months old, I think, so. Okay. And he's a dog. He's, he's a prodigy, though. I'm sure. That's true. That's true. There are many reasons to become a patron beyond making sure that Alwyn goes to the Dog Ivy League. One of them is to be able to participate in our AMAs, which we traditionally do on the first Saturday of every month. However, for this August, for logistical reasons, we will actually be doing it the second Saturday of the month. We will be doing it August 13th. And if you are already a patron, thank you, thank you, thank you. If you're not a patron, that's also pretty cool. You're listening, and we love listeners. And if you want to do something nice for us, you could rate and review the show or tweet about it or tell a friend or a neighbor. All that stuff would be helpful. We just want to continue to do this, and having more listeners would probably help. Mm-hmm. And you can find out more at patreon.com slash And until next time, Dan. Keep this channel open for more.